Well, here we are in week seven of our 10-week journey through James. Uh, you re might remember from your little bookmark that we subtitled this study, Stand Steadfast, which is our women's ministry theme for this school year. Back in James 1, we saw that we can stand steadfast in trials and temptations by clinging to those rock-solid truths of the purposes of God, the goodness of God, and the word of God. And then in James 2, we saw two key aspects of a true, biblical, living, consistent, steadfast faith is that it's evidenced by love and not partiality, and it's also evidenced by works. Remember, Cherie said, a steadfast faith works. It cannot do otherwise. In addition, we've seen that our steadfast faith is revealed by suffering in James 1, and it's also demonstrated by our obedience to God and his word, and is evidenced by love and by good works in James 2, and by our speech in James 3. And last week, Sharice led us through James 3, where we learned the incredible power of our words to direct, to destroy, or to delight someone by blessing them or tearing them down by cursing. And then hearkening back to our study in Proverbs, James contrasted true wisdom with false wisdom. And we learned that true wisdom brings peace. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3, this is how the chapter 3 ends. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The loveliness of living in peace according to God's wisdom versus the ugly, evil, earthly wisdom that results in broken relationships and strife. And that's the immediate context now of James 4. How can we be steadfast in our relationships with others horizontally but also with God, vertically. Who are we close to? Do we have any fractured relationships? What or who should we avoid? We can expect that troubles or opposition will come as we live our lives, striving to be steadfast. In fact, in fact Jesus promised that we would have tribulation, but that he has overcome the world. In our passage today, we should ask ourselves, are we fighting the right battles? Who or what are our real enemies? Are your brothers and sisters in the church your enemies? Or are you acting as if they are? James has some warnings for us to heed. In fact, the heading of this section in the ESV is warning against worldliness. So we have to ask ourselves, what is our relationship with the world? And how does that affect our relationship with God? So the greatest of all news for us in this passage is that his grace is more and that he gives more grace. As we sang earlier, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. And how does he do that? It's out of those infinite riches that we have in Jesus, that Jesus purchased for us. So my main point this morning is ask for more grace from Jesus to live steadfastly in relationship with God and with others, and that takes humility and repentance. It takes God's grace. So would you pray with me as we dive in? Lord, would you come now and help us to understand these words from James? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open, hearts that are humble and willing to receive your instruction. 
We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so in verses one through three, we see the first problem. James likes to ask questions that make us think. And so he opens chapter two with questions that seem to indicate that the believers to whom James was writing were engaged in some verbal battles with one another. In the Phillips version, he says, what about those feuds and struggles that exist among you? Where do you suppose they come from? Well, his answer is, James's answer is that we might think that other people are the problem. After all, they are, aren't they? Right? But instead, he tells us that the problem is with us. We are the issue. He points to an underlying sin in our hearts, that our splintered relationships are caused by our own sinful passions and our selfish desires, our selfish ambitions that we saw last week in chapter 3, and the idols of our hearts. Philip's translation goes on. He said, you crave for something and don't get it. You are jealous and envious of what others have got, and you don't possess it yourselves. Consequently, in your exasperated frustration, you struggle and fight with one another. So what are these passions? They are pleasures, desires, usually in a negative sense. These are like sinful gratification, sensual pleasure. And this is where we get the word hedonism. You're familiar with that word. And by the way, John Piper coined the term Christian hedonism quite a few years ago, and it caused a stir. Because there are a lot of people that don't believe that those two words belong together in the same phrase. But what he meant is that our greatest pleasures, our deepest desires, our ultimate delights are found only in God, in God himself. And our desire to be happy is not at odds with God's desire for his glory. And so he coined the phrase that you probably all could say with me, right? God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. However, hedonism usually refers to the things that the world has to offer us, so things that have the power to influence us or control us. You might think of things like, things that could be good, but tend to control us. Maybe entertainment, like what do you watch on Netflix at night, right? Or shopping, eating, sports, vacation, travel. Perhaps, you know, these are not necessarily bad things, but they can be elevated above finding our delight in God. First, uh, First Peter 2, 11 gives a sense of this battle that we have going on in us. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So the battle is not with our brothers and sisters, but with our flesh. And Paul famously described this in Romans 7, in that passage where he said, I don't understand my own actions. For what I, I do what I don't want to do, but I do the very things I hate. Now if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that is good, so now it's no longer I who do it, do it, but sin who dwells in me. And he goes on and on about this battle that he has inside. And then he exclaims at the end of chapter 7, Oh, wretched man that I am. You know, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, because he comes in and he can give us that power. He gives us the grace to deal with those things in our heart. So our sinful desires impact our prayer life and they impact our relationship with God. 
they take root in our heart and we maybe quit praying or cause us to pray for the wrong things. James may be reminded, reminding us of what he said back in chapter 1, verse 5, when he said, ask, ask, but don't ask with a self-centered attitude. So one problem is that we have passions and no prayer, and the other problem is that we have selfish prayer. Now, connecting back to James 3, the godly, wise woman will strive for peace and will do battle with the desires of her heart and not with other people. She won't be jealous or motivated by selfish ambition. She won't speak evil of her sisters, but will be humble in trusting her life to the Lord, our righteous judge. And now we come to the solution. We are to ask, to ask for the wisdom from above and ask for more of God's grace. Phillips put it this way, you don't get what you want because you don't ask God for it. And when you do ask, he doesn't give it to you, for you ask in quite the wrong spirit. You only want to satisfy your own desires. So we ask ourselves, what is the purpose of prayer? Is it like a genie's lamp that we rub to get what we want when we want it? Is it to persuade a reluctant God to do our bidding? No, the purpose of prayer is to ask him to accomplish his will here on earth, to conform our will to his, to give us his wisdom and his perspective on everything in our lives. God is generous beyond our imagination, so why do we not ask? Is it maybe our pride, our self-sufficiency? Spurgeon said, if you may have everything by asking and nothing without asking, I beg you to see how absolutely vital prayer is and I beseech you to abound in it. Do you know, brothers, what great things are to be had for the asking? Have you ever thought of it? Does it not stimulate you to pray fervently? All heaven lies before the grasp of the asking. All the promises of God are rich and inexhaustible, and their fulfillment is to be had by prayer. And now, since it's Global Focus this week at the North Church, I want to give you an example of prayer from missions. I read this in a blog post last week, and I was really struck by the title. That's what got me to read it. The title was, Have You Ever Been Rebuked by Bananas? <clears throat> All right, probably not. But a young missionary named Darlene was. She and her husband continued their ministry to the people of New Guinea, even though war had broken out across the globe in the 30s, 1930s and 40s. Eventually, Japan took control of the island, and they were placed under house arrest, and they were later incarcerated in a Japanese prison camp where Darlene would become a widow. She endured atrocities such as torture, starvation, solitary confinement during her four years as a prisoner. Not surprisingly, during this time, her faith began to wane. One day, she learned that another prisoner had received a single banana. Darlene dared to ask God for a banana of her own, but then she backpedaled. God, there's just no way you could get a banana to me in here. It's just too hard, Lord. A while later, she received a visit from a friendly guard who noticed her miserable state, and before long, a surprise arrived at her cell. Not one banana, but 92 bananas. 
Darlene was instantly rebuked. Rather than lift her hands in exuberant praise, she bowed her head in humility, praying, forgive me, Lord, for being so silly. Of course he could get a banana to her. After all, she served the God who was able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. We serve a God who loves to exceed our expectations with his kindness. We experience it every day, not in a 92 banana kind of way, but in a daily bread sort of way. Do you ever let God's abundant and unfailing generosity rebuke your fragile faith? I'm afraid I don't. I'll send you the link to that so you could read it again if you'd like. So our main point is ask for more grace from Jesus to live steadfastly in relationship with God and with others, and it's going to take humility and repentance. It's going to take God's grace. So now we've seen in the first three verses a focus on our relationship with others, and now in verses 4 through 10, you're going to see a shift to our relationship with God and versus the world, okay? So the problem is the world in verses 4 through 5. In the Phillips version, he says, You are like unfaithful wives, flirting with the glamour of this world and never realizing that to be the world's lover means being the enemy of God. Anyone who deliberately chooses to love the world is thereby making himself God's enemy. Now, the ESV translates adulterous people. That's the way it translates it. You see that in in your Bible, right? You might wonder why. And if you go to Blue Letter Bible and look compared versions, you would see that this term is that, that ESV translated adulteresses in many other versions is translated adulterers or adulterous um, people, sometimes adulteresses, right? And the, the, term, the more general term, adulterers, was added by a copyist later, scholars think, because the original Greek word is a feminine form of the word. So originally meaning adulteresses, but way back there was someone who was doing the copying into these versions who thought, well, James was not just addressing only women who were cheating on their husbands, but he was addressing all believers, so they wanted to make it more general, adulterers. However, that does lose a little bit of the specific spiritual suggestion here, because in the Old Testament, God is portrayed as our husband, and we are his wife. And so the breach of Israel's relationship with God through their adultery was described as, or through their idolatry was described as adultery. It was also described as harlotry. They wanted God's blessings, but they didn't want to be faithful to God alone. So like an adulterous wife, Israel cheated on God by chasing worthless idols and false gods, foolish passions. In the same way as believers, we are married to Jesus. So how can it be that we are loving the world? Believers who cultivate friendship with the world while professing allegiance to Christ are spiritual adulteresses. How can we who have been spiritually united to him as wife to husband embrace the conduct of God's enemies? And yet, God's grace is glorious. It's stunning because his response to the unfaithfulness of his people is to make a way again for that relationship to be whole again rather than to reject us. So the solution is steadfast allegiance to God and not the world. 
Verse 5 says, Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. This phrase is a little hard to understand. Some of you might have struggled with that this week, and the commentators say this is one of the hardest verses in James to unpack. This term jealousy is usually a a negative thing, isn't it? We're not to be jealous. We learned that in in chapter 3. We should do away with our jealousy and our, our selfish ambition. But here this is describing how God yearns over us. Now, does James mean that God jealously learns for the devotion of our spirit, that life spirit that he has put within us, that he has breathed into us? Or is it the spirit within us that's jealously yearning for the full devotion of our heart and pushing us back toward God, convicting us of sin? Um, James may have had in mind the theme of God's jealousy here is expressed in the Old Testament. In Exodus 34, 4, we read, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Either way, the sense is that God yearns for us to be steadfastly devoted to him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. He loves us, and we are his, which is what makes our sin so horrible and his love so amazing. You know that old song, Oh, love that will not let me go. That describes God, his pursuing love for us. He does not want us to be double-minded, trying to keep one foot in the world while saying that we love God. Sisters, we are not called to be like the world. Do you think the world cares? No. We do not try to be like we do not need to try to be like the world. James has already called us to be unstained in chapter 1 verse 27. And Jesus told us in John 15:19, "If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you." So we should be courageous in standing up for truth and Even in our struggles and failures, we become more like Jesus. Remember James 1.4, steadfastness produces wholeness. Remember, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So right here in the middle of the passage now, James gives the solution first and then the problem. He goes on to describe our problem again as that sinful pride. But the solution here is grace. He gives more grace. His grace is more than enough, and it is stronger than any sin. We sing, you are stronger, you are stronger. Sin is broken, you have saved me. It is written, Christ is risen. Jesus, you are Lord of all. Doug Moo put it this way, our God is a consuming fire, and his demands on us may seem terrifying, But our God is also merciful, gracious, all-loving, willingly supplies all that we need to meet his all-encompassing demands. As Augustine has said, God gives what he demands. So what is the condition to receive this grace? It's humility. We come in meekness, not boasting, as we saw back in James 3. 
So ask for more grace from Jesus to live steadfastly in relationship to God and others. It takes humility and repentance. It takes God's grace. The solution is more grace. In verse 6, we run to our God of marvelous grace. The remedy is the gospel. This is the only cure for our heart condition. We need to admit our need for God's grace. Here we hear the echoes from the Sermon on the Mount in this section. It's by his grace that we are transformed. We submit to God. We draw near to him, humbling ourselves. And we look to Jesus as our example of humility. True humility is found only in the gospel and turning to the one who humbled himself. We read in Philippians 2, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So again, we see the problem is opposition to God, opposition to God in pride. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, this idea of opposing the proud, um, I was reminded of a story from the Old Testament in the book of Daniel because Barry and I are teaching in the preschool class at 9 a.m. And this coming week, it's on King Nebuchadnezzar. And do you remember how he proclaimed in his pride? He said, is not this great Babylon, which I built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Remember that? And what happens to Nebuchadnezzar? Remember? He goes out in the field and he eats grass like a beast, right? Like an ox. And God, said, God goes to a great lengths then to, to get his glory back. He says, seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. So God will go to great lengths to oppose the proud and to protect his glory. So let's humble ourselves and not be on the wrong side of that, all right? Now, this next section has a long list of imperatives or commands, and it's a call to repentance and to humility. And I included a chart there in your handout that you can follow along. These verses tell us what it looks like to repent and to live in light of God's grace. When we are in Christ, we are a new creation. God gives us a new heart. And so this is what it looks like. Number one, we submit ourselves to God. We stop resisting because we do not want God in opposition to us. We want his grace, right? So we want to voluntarily align ourselves with God in humility. Number two, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Just as God actively opposes the proud, we must also be active in taking up the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6 tells us, and stand firm against the adversary. Now, this word devil, diablos, is the Greek equivalent to Satan in Hebrew, and it means accuser, adversary, slanderer, liar. And it's important to remember that he is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. He is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at the same time. And he is not sovereign. Right? He can only do what God allows him to do. He is God's enemy, but God has him on a leash. James promises that if we resist him, he will flee. The Greek word here for flee is where we get the word fugitive from. 
Jesus modeled this kind of resistance when he was tempted in the wilderness. How did he do that? He consistently wielded the sword of the spirit, the word of God, to stand up to the devil's temptations. 1 John 4, 4 tells us, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Number three, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now we are sometimes unfaithful, not steadfast, but the Lord welcomes us and enables us with fresh supplies of his grace in order to draw near to him. And when we do, what do we find? Forgiveness and grace and strength. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call on him in truth. Number four, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Philip says, realize that you have sinned and get your hands clean again. So the language that's used here, to wash, to cleanse, to purify, does this sound familiar from some of the studies that we had in the Old Testament? Do you remember in the book of Exodus, the Old Testament priests, would, they would perform these rituals of purification through repeated sacrifices. We don't do that any longer, and the reason why is that Jesus has come once for all. Hebrews 9.14 tells us how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we get his righteousness by coming to him in faith. So keep coming. Number five, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Philip says, realize that you have been disloyal and get your hearts made true once more. We've heard this term, double-minded, being torn between wanting God and wanting the world. Now, the Apostle John didn't use this term, double-minded, but listen to this verse, these verses and see if you hear it. This is 1 John 1. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So number six and seven, be wretched and mourn. We should come to God with a deep sense of sorrow, grieved over our sin. It should bring us to tears. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We are also, number eight, to weep. If we live by God's grace, we will draw near to him and come often and weep over our sins and confess. He is faithful and he forgives us. Number nine is let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James is not suggesting here that laughter is sinful. James is not a killjoy, denying any place for laughter or joy in our lives. But very often in the Old Testament, laughter was a scornful kind of laughter of the fool who refused to take sin seriously. It's the mark of someone who is just happy going about their business in the world, laughing, and then later will find out, weeping, that they missed the truth of who God was.
So that's the sense here. We should weep over our sin now, and then God will give us the joy in our salvation. In fact, Psalm 126, 2 and 3 says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. So where does true joy and gladness come from? It comes from after we've repented and we've been forgiven and cleansed. So number 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Phillips put it this way, you will have to feel very small in the sight of God before he will set you on your feet once more. Now the solution is back to where we started up in verse 6. The solution is humility, seeking more of God's grace. It's like a bookend in this section here. While it's true that God sometimes humbles us, sometimes through trials that we face, that we saw back in chapter 1, we can see here that humbling ourselves is a command. We need to lay down our pride, our self-sufficiency, our achievements, and instead throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus in faith. And then God will exalt us. Jesus said in Luke 18, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we are as children, reconciled to God through Jesus, and our position with Christ is that of being in him, seated with him. It's kind of that already not yet kind of tension, right? Can you see how our obedience to these commands and pursuing a right relationship with God could lead to less strained relationships with others? Here's a few reminders. Remember, our obedience does not earn God's grace or God's love. Obedience is the evidence that we have received his grace. We can't obey in our own strength, but he gives us more strength. Now, the first and the last of this long list involves humility, humbling ourselves. It's what ties this section back to James 3. It takes humility to be meek. It takes humility to walk in that wisdom from above and not in worldly wisdom. It takes humility to set aside our desires for the good of others. It takes humility to pray and to ask for more of God's grace and to submit to God and to be grieved over our sin. So ask for more grace from Jesus to live steadfastly in relationship with others and with God. It takes humility and repentance and grace. Now, the first three verses focused on our fractured relationship with others. Verses 4 through 10 focused on our relationship with God and with the world. And now James goes back to our relationship with others and God. We're going to see that it takes humility to trust our good and righteous judge rather than to judge the motives of others. In the Phillips version, verses 11 and 12 says this, Never pull each other to pieces, my brothers. If you do, you are judging your brother and setting yourself up in the place of God's law. You have become, in fact, a critic of the law. Yet, if you start to criticize the law instead of obeying it, you are setting yourself up as judge and there is only one judge, the one who gave the law, to whom belongs the absolute power of life and death. How then can you be so silly as to imagine that you are your neighbor's judge? Here we have a summary 
of what James has been saying so far about our speech. How we as believers should treat one another as we walk with Jesus. Our words have significance in how they impact others and what they reveal about our hearts. He's already warned us about arrogant boasting, about jealousy, about our self-centered desires and pride. And like he did back in chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, he brings in the law now and judgment. He uses the term law here four times. And as in James 2, this is referring back to Leviticus 19.18, the royal law, which says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James also uses the word judge here six times. This key word doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to be discerning. We are called to be critical thinkers, but not critical of our brothers and sisters. We're to know the difference between true and false teaching, true and false faith, and also good and bad fruit. I had a friend who said, we should be fruit inspectors, <laughs> you know, from the passage on the Sermon on the Mount, but also from last week in James 3, do you remember verse 12? Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? James is saying no. We need to look at the fruit of someone's life. We also need to be Bereans. You remember in Acts 17, 11, the people in that church of Berea were commended because they didn't just follow everything they heard, but they checked the scriptures daily to see if it was true. So we are not to judge someone's character or motives and then slander or speak other evil about them. The only person with the right to judge our neighbor is God. So ask, are we truly contending for the faith or are we just being quarrelsome? What is our goal? To win an argument? To look good? Or is it to win someone with the truth and to exalt in Jesus, to bring God glory? And again, we see the solution is to be like him. He gives us more grace. As we turn from our prideful sins, we look more and more like Jesus. Gospel-driven humility will be on display in our lives. We will leave judgment up to the one who judges justly and who is able to save us. He doesn't speak to us in humiliating ways. He extends grace and mercy. He is faithful to forgive when we come to him in repentance. All of our sin is covered at the cross, paid for by the blood of Jesus. Our sin is great, but his grace is greater. Our judge has become our savior, our brother, our friend. And so we began by asking, who or what? are your enemies? The answer is our own selfish passions and our desires. So my prayer is that you will examine your life, you will fight against those sinful desires, resist the temptations of the world, and heed all these commands and warnings against pride and criticism and boasting. And then what else will you do? I hope you will ask. Ask Jesus for more grace to live steadfastly with others with God, because we need humility, we need repentance, we need his grace to do that. So would you pray with me as we close? Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you give it generously. You're stunning to us in your generosity. And so we want to come to you humbly. 
with hearts that are just crying out for you to make us more like you, Jesus. So would you do that? We know that's a prayer that you would love to fulfill in our life in abounding ways. So thank you that you are the God who gives immeasurably more than we could ask or even imagine because all the riches of grace are in Jesus. And so we thank you for Jesus and we just pray that you would help us now to be steadfast in our relationship with you and in our relationship with others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.